Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com. And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Happy holidays. <laughs> Happy New Year. I don't know when, I don't know when this uh, episode's airing. But uh, uh, whenever it comes out, happy holidays from us, the team. It's no bad time to be in the holiday spirit. Uh, this is the last episode of the year. We're going to uh, take a break over the holidays. We're going to put a couple episodes through some of our favorites, some classics. Uh, but for this week, the last episode of the year, I talked to uh, Mina Kimes, former guest on the long form podcast incredibly early i am gonna say episode, i'm gonna say single single digits yeah i think it's either seven or nine one could have argued that i could have prepared enough to know that but i'm just looking at it on my phone no one would argue right that now she's lived a lot of life since then number 12 long form podcast wow. number 12 and you're right aaron she has lived lots of lives. so when she came on she was an investigative reporter with fortune she was like uh doing stories about white collar crime she went from there to bloomberg and was doing the same thing and then in what feels at least to me like um a kind of wild thing uh megan greenwell former long form podcast guest was editing at ESPN the magazine and she convinced Mina to stop writing about financial news and start writing about sports. So she went to ESPN as a feature writer and then over the last several years has become a real uh, jack of many, many trades. Uh, she is on TV all the time. She hosts podcasts. You've probably seen her on TV even if you don't realize you've seen her on TV. Exactly. You've set foot in a sports bar in the last few years, you've probably seen her. Yeah, her like bread and butter is the NFL and one piece of context. There's lots of NFL players named in this episode and we don't exactly explain who they are. So oh boy. just just grease on by that as you're listening if you're not an NFL fan. But uh, we talked a lot about what it's like to report and commentate on the NFL from within inside ESPN, which is one of the NFL's biggest partners. But we also talked about basically how Mina juggles all of these different things. So she's like still writing features. She is on TV all the time. She hosts ESPN's new daily podcast, which is like a big ambitious project. And I just want to pa- I just want to pause here. We're X years in. Can you guys imagine hosting a daily podcast? 
Well, I can't even really imagine it if that was all you were doing, and it's not even close to all she's doing. Way I, too much. I don't want to spoil this interview, but it is basically me over and over again being like, how do you do all of this? Uh, which is sort of a conversation she wanted to have. Hey, uh, by the time we talk to you again, you have made your New Year's resolutions. And one of your New Year's resolutions may be to start an email newsletter. I don't know. Could be. Uh, do it with MailChimp. They make it really easy and you don't even have to start paying right away. So it's not like you can use that as your excuse like it is for the gym. You can start an email newsletter in 2020 for $0 with MailChimp. So do it. They are a big supporter of the show. I just want to thank them for the whole year uh, they've been making this show possible. Thanks to MailChimp. And now here's Max with Mina Kimes. Uh, hey, Mina. Hi. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Second time. Yeah. You were very early. I want to say, was it 2009? No, not that early. Okay. <laughs> we're old, but we're not that old. Uh, it was 2012. Oh. Hmm. And you did the interview with Aaron. We're breaking one of our rules, which is that when someone comes back on the podcast, the person who initially interviewed them has to interview them again. Oh. Uh, but I was here in Los Angeles, so mm. I'm just doing it. Uh, but some things have changed since then. Yeah. Here are some things that have changed. <laughs> Tell uh, me. One is we now know to record with two microphones. Yeah, the sound was awful on that one. So bad. So bad. I remember I listened to it because that was when I used to listen to everything I did. Wow. Good thing to admit. And I remember it was hard to listen to because the audio was so bad. Yeah, it's terrible. Uh, so that's one thing that's different. But another thing that's different was um, you were a like up and coming acclaimed business writer at the time. Hmm. You were doing financial investigations. I think I was at Fortune. If it was 2012, that's right. Yeah, I was yeah, at, Fortune at Fortune Magazine back then. Yeah, I was doing features about hedge funders and healthcare companies and investigations and that sort of thing. And now I pretend to get tricked by an old man on television, um, <laughs> give hot, flaming hot sports takes, and occasionally do a little writing. Help me understand how you went from like deep hedge fund investigations to flaming hot sports takes. Well, that's a long journey. Good thing Long's in the name of this podcast. So we people have, people we have know time. what they're expecting. They signed up for this. Um, well, I'll tell you how I got to work at ESPN because yeah. it was, I think, two years after that. So I went from Fortune to Bloomberg. I was part of the investigative team there. And just a year into working at Bloomberg and had stories in Bloomberg, Bloomberg Business Week, the places they owned, I wrote a personal essay about football, in particular my love of football. Slate republished it and um, ESPN saw it. Our mutual friend Megan Greenwell sure. uh, was an editor at ESPN the magazine and asked me if I would consider switching to writing about sports. They may have also noticed that all of my tweets were dumb football memes. I think that also made them think that it was a thing that I might be into. Uh, and I said yes. So you got a sports writing gig off basically one essay. A blog. <laughs> uh, and a lot of memes. Okay. <laughs> Listen, and, I don't like your tone. And the tweets. And the tweets. Uh, was that a hard call? Definitely for ESPN, probably. Um for me, yeah, I was, I want to say, I guess, 29, 30 or something. And um, I felt like I had already built up some credibility in one space, certainly institutional knowledge. 
So I was kind of scared of leaving that behind and going to a different field, even if essentially I was doing the same thing, which was writing features. I wasn't coming on as an investigative reporter, but, you know, at the time I was writing magazine features. I was going to a place where I would write magazine features. So the tools were the same. The underlying work was the same, but the total field, all of my knowledge would kind of render useless. Yeah. So was it a tough call? No. I mean, <laughs> well, you get a chance to do what you love, right? I mean, is it ever really a tough call? So had that been in your mind somewhere that like no. the best case scenario is I end nah. up a sports writer? Never. Just Never. Gonna, just going to keep tweeting these memes until someone realizes? Every time I do something new in sports media, like this summer I did some um, color commentary for the NFL, Every people are always like, oh, you must have wanted to do this ever since you were a little girl. And I was like, no, <laughs> I wanted to be a painter. I, I have no dreams. I've never had aspirations. Um, and that's not a joke. I, I really have nev- never had a five-year plan. I still don't have a five-year plan. But um, I never saw myself as a sports writer or working in sports. No, I, I was a huge fan and a huge nerd about it, but it wasn't something I thought I was going to be doing at any point in my life. So why was it such an easy call? Well, so at that point, despite being a business journalist, an ostensibly serious one, I was probably spending at least 16 hours a week watching, consuming football content. You can maybe find me on some message boards. Please don't look. Um, (laughs) It'll be in the show notes. So the notion that I could call that a job was just so immediately enticing, even though I had not thought about it. I didn't think through the mechanics of like, what it's like to interview athletes and go into a locker room and and what, will it be harder? Will it be easier? None of that entered my mind. It's just the idea like, wow, this thing that I really love could also be the thing that I devote all of my energy to professionally. That's bonkers. (laughs) So yeah, it was kind of a no brainer. I mean, I I remember very vividly calling my dad. My dad's like my football. That's what the essay I wrote about was about my relationship with my dad. And I remember calling him. And the first thing he said to me, I'll never forget, Max, like it honestly brings a tear to my eye. Will I get free tickets? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I don't know. He said, you should probably take it. Let's find out. Did it work out? No, he does not get free tickets. That's not how it works, guys. (laughs) I don't have free tickets for anyone. Um. Uh, it's potentially like a fucked up question, but like, um, curious, you, good setup. Were you worried at all that it was like, um, less serious? That's not a fucked up question. That's a super rational question, I think. And I think maybe serious isn't the word I'd use to describe my own concerns, but like impactful. Yeah. Cause you know, at the time I was doing investigative stories, I felt like I was doing important work. Um, I was really proud of a lot of the stories I yeah, did. The stakes were high in those pieces. Yeah. So yeah, I, that was something that I think entered my mind. Like, will I miss sort of writing about these topics? I, I have had some opportunities to do investigative work at ESPN or to write about super quote unquote serious subjects. But I think what I've found, and this is something I did not know would be the case going into it, is that sports stories and at the risk of sounding a bit self-important, maybe someone like me writing sports stories or talking about it in particular um, can have an impact in other ways that have revealed themselves to me over time. Let's spend some time in that (laughs) self-importance. That's the tagline for this podcast. Let's spend some time in that self-importance. It's a tagline for the entire podcast. Yeah, really. What What does that look like to you? Like what was revealed in that way? 
I think finding out that even sports stories about topics that aren't like, I don't know, this, the more serious ones I did. Like, what was it, last summer I did a cover story about Ali Reisman. That's a serious story. And, and her becoming sort of an advocate uh, for me, too. Um, I did an investigation about a company called Advocare, a multi-level marketing company. So, awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Those are serious stories, right? And, and so, you know, you know, you do a story like that and you know it's going to hit people a certain way and you'll get a certain kind of feedback. But sometimes, you know, I would just do like stories about football players and I wouldn't think anything of it. And I would get a letter from someone saying, hey, like, you know, I was having a really bad day and reading this story about an athlete I love and I knew nothing about, like, made me feel better. Or it made me more excited to watch them play. Or it made me more excited to, I don't know, go exercise or something. And I think, I mean, people don't really write those kinds of letters about hedge funders. <laughs> I just think sports touch people in a different way. And people, like, let those stories into their lives in a very different fashion from anything else. But what did you mean by um, someone like you doing it? Oh, I think also, you know, I guess that might be a little bit less about writing and more about my work just kind of being a gas bag, right? Because uh, uh, for people who are listening who don't watch lots of ESPN, can you <laughs> define your gas bag work? Yeah. So I am an analyst on a bunch of our shows. I do radio as well. And uh, shows like Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, where we debate sports topics um, again, some serious, some not, give takes, and there's nothing radical about it at all. But obviously, having people like me is somewhat new to the space, but me and some others, obviously. So that in itself is novel and I think interesting to people. How does that interestingness <laughs> manifest itself? I'm trying to find a way to say this. It doesn't sound so important. I don't know. People the, always ask. It's the tagline of the podcast. I know, okay. I know. I'm trying to, that's the second part. I'm trying to find a way. Um, I don't know. I mean, you asked me if I had ever thought of myself doing this, and I said no. And some of that is because I had dumb ambitions as a child, um, like, you know, being a painter and having a daughter named Denim or whatever. But um, some of it is also just because I didn't really see that many people like me and didn't have that idea in my head. So uh, it's good to think that that could change. Do you see that changing? Like, does that idea manifest itself in some way? Just today, a three-year-old girl <laughs> walked up to me on the street with a... No, just kidding. <laughs> Sparkle in her eye. Um, yeah, I mean, I see a lot more uh, young women, Asians in, in the space, and I, I think that's very exciting, obviously, to someone like me. And I, I feel like that's a big responsibility, not to, like, quote-unquote, inspire them, but to just perpetuate the idea that it's very normal. How do you do that work? Just by literally going on TV and doing it. I, I I feel like the best way to normalize the existence of people like me and spaces where we haven't been is to kick ass. <laughs> and I fail at that most days, but some days I don't. Um, have there been any parts of that that are difficult? Yeah. You, you know, like, uh, yes, sure. you have three-year-old girls coming up to you on the street with twinkles <laughs> in their eye. But, like, uh, what's hard about doing yeah. that? Um, well, you know what's harder? So the transition from being a writer to being an analyst, a commentator, and a writer, it's difficult to me not – I think a small part of it is that consciousness of that sort of representation or lack thereof. But the bigger part for me is I just never saw myself 
being a commentator. I mean, I was always a behind the scenes person. I'm a writer, you know, and I think some writers make the transition to doing television work more easily than others. A lot of commentators are former reporters and writers and of different stripes. But, you know, I, as a writer, I liked observing and documenting and witnessing things and then synthesizing them. I did not like performing or being the person who's written about and sort of to be on the other side of that is something I did not anticipate and I've had to learn how to do. Did you like performing like in other, some other aspect of your life? Like, uh, yeah. were you a performative kid? No, but I do think there is an element of performance in reporting and in particular reporting profiles and features. You know, I, I know I just said you're kind of a fly on the wall and you're observing, but that's not really true. You're facilitating, and that does require uh, an element of performance. I think that any magazine writer would attest to um, being a reporter, and especially, I think, reporting magazine pieces, it's so active. Your brain has to be working so quickly. You're anticipating what the person's going to say, where you want to take the conversation. You're sort of writing, directing, and producing all at the same time. And it does require you, I think, to be a performer in some ways. And so even when I saw myself in that role and not as someone on camera, I was still performing. So there are some like shared muscles, just one of them, there's like a camera in front of you. Yeah, definitely. And also writing is still, I mean, I don't write the things I'm going to say, but my brain does the same functions, which is, you know, taking words and trying to put them together in fun and interesting ways. Yeah. Totally. It's a different, very different kind of writing. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Mina on hold for just a second. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Make It Today's Show Possible. It's Native. Native creates safe, simple, effective products that people use every day. Their products are filled with trusted ingredients and their natural deodorant, which is what I'm here to talk about. It's no different. Native deodorant is formulated without aluminum, parabens, talc, and with ingredients found in, uh, you know, actual nature. Coconut oil, shea butter, something called tapioca starch, with which I was not familiar before right now. But uh, it's got good stuff, all good stuff, none of the bad stuff. Their formula contains simple ingredients that you'll actually understand, except for maybe tapioca starch, and comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for both men and women. Plus, they release these new uh, limited edition seasonal scents throughout the year. The one that I've got is uh, eucalyptus and mint smells delightful. They even have a new candy cane scent just for the holidays. Making the switch to a natural deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on odor or wetness protection. Native is proof the deodorant works. You smell great. You don't stink. And uh, it's all natural. There's a reason why it has over 9,000 five-star reviews. There's also no risk to try it. Native offers free shipping and free returns and exchanges in the United States of America. I am using Native right now. It's great. I'm telling you, the eucalyptus and mint. So uh, so classy. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code LONGFORM during checkout. Again, that's nativedeodorant.com, promo code LONGFORM for 20% off your first purchase. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Mina. <laughs> Thank you. 
let's talk a little bit more about the transition from the business stuff to sure. writing about sports. Like when you showed up, so you like uh, you take that gig. What's different about writing like a profile of a quarterback yeah. than investigating a hedge fund? So the biggest difference is most of the people reading it already know who that quarterback is and give a shit about him. <laughs> so there's also been a lot written about him, right? So in, in that way, it's a lot more like, I think, writing about Hollywood or an actor or an actress. Like the burden on you is different because in some ways it's lower because people care, but in other ways it's higher because people already know a lot about this person, right? So you're thinking, oh, and I should also throw in, you probably have way worse access. <laughs> um, although uh, you'd be surprised, it's really varied for me over the course of my career with the different profiles I've done with athletes. Like there's some guys where you'd think, or and women where you'd think, oh, you're not going to get any time and I end up getting a whole day or afternoon or... How much time do you need for it to be good? That's a great question. Um, in reality, I think it actually really depends on the story and what I'm trying to do with it. What's ideal for me, and just we're talking about profiles, is to spend at least a couple hours talking to someone and ideally seeing them like move around in the world in some way, in some situation that gives me some insight into who they are as a person, whether that's talking to fans or a waiter or a teammate. Not just because you need to plug a scene into the piece? <laughs> No, I find that so valuable. I feel like I'm able to glean so much insight. I mean, I can think back through my pieces and think through like, wow, like I really learned a lot by just watching how this person interacts with other people. Is there like, it seems like there's like an example you're thinking Oh, gosh. I, mean, I could just go through all of my pieces. <laughs> like, I think there's always been a moment where I'm like, oh, okay, that's who you are as a person. Is that how it works? Like you, you have some moment in the process where you're like, and now I understand you. Kind of, yeah. I try to go into all these profiles without a preconceived notion of what the piece is going to be about. I know what the tensions are. Like if I'm writing about a player like, I don't know. Uh, my very first cover story at ESPN was about Darrell Rivas, cornerback. He just signed a big deal with the Jets. And the pressure point was like, oh, he's like this mercenary businessman. He's like held out. He's, you know. So I met him. I remember he was very late um, in New York. And... We went for a walk. We walked really far and just talked down all the way down to Soho. He had like a sushi restaurant he wanted to go to. No one recognized him, which actually that itself was kind of interesting to me. A lot of NFL players don't get recognized, by the way. Helmets. And it's the helmets, yeah. And um, he's kind of an anonymous guy, too. And anyways, the pressure point was like, okay, he's this mercenary. He's holds out. He's, I think at that point, had made like, I don't know, $160 million or something crazy. So going into it, I was like, he's so he's the savviest businessman. I'm going to write about how Darrell Revis has like figured out the NFL and he's this great businessman. He's so savvy. And he is. He's a really smart guy. But as I spent time with him and watched him interact with people, and then I remember I went to his apartment to do the last interview and there was this weird moment where he had like a blanket. So he's telling me he's like such a loner. He goes on He just gone on vacation by himself. And he That's had a, amazing. He had a he had, yeah. It was funny. He had gone to like Toronto, and he showed me like he'd picked a selfie he had taken on the CN Tower of himself, just just by himself. And he was like telling me he loves to like go to parties and just ghost everyone. And like okay. And during the interview, he took out a blanket and he kind of like wrapped it around himself like a babushka, so only his little <laughs> face was poking out and was talking to me. And in that moment, I was like, oh, you're just a weirdo. <laughs> you just don't care what any like. And I realized like, oh, this guy isn't able to hold out and 
do all this stuff financially because he's like this canny businessman. It's because he truly doesn't care. Like, he just doesn't care. He doesn't care that, like, everyone's calling him greedy. He doesn't give a shit. <laughs> and I think sometimes with profiles, like, you spend these time with these guys and they change your mind about what the story is actually about and who they are as a person. And it happens to me more often than not. All right. So that's like one piece of the work you do. And then also since you got to ESPN, which was what, 2014? That sounds right. There are also these kind of like more investigative pieces and these features. And then slowly, like maybe 2015, 2016, you start going on TV. Yeah, 2017, actually. 2017. Yeah, so you've not been... that long ago. It feels like I was a doing radio time. before then, though. Help me understand how like the pie chart of your brain works. Like, how do you do? I understand that the way that ESPN works is that sure. people do a lot of different jobs. Yeah, but really, the reason that I wanted to talk to you is like I've been following from afar, and I don't understand how you do all these different jobs. Yeah, well, I have the fortune of writing infrequently so that's a start um I'm, i don't write very often yeah how do you feel about that fortune is the wrong word i fortune in the sense that like i'm not a you know grinding out stories a lot right. i i feel very lucky man like i have espn has blessed me with like some of the most insane incitements of my life i've gone to korea three times for stories Okay, and I'm Korean, so it was basically a junket for me. I stayed and saw family all three times. Um, two esports stories, both of which I love doing and are some of my favorite stories I've ever written about something I knew nothing about beforehand. One was about, in 2015, about a League of Legends player, this 19-year-old kid named Faker. At the time, we weren't doing esports coverage. We now have a whole esports vertical. Is that a story you pitched or got assigned? Megan Greenwell, this is back when she was still my editor, she... They were like, hey, we're doing an esports issue. Let's esport. Let's figure this out. You know, write about something. And there really hadn't been a lot of mainstream, really anything in the U.S. There was an excellent New Yorker story about a StarCraft player named Scarlet by um, Ben McGrath. McGrath. It's a phenomenal piece. But, you know, so but my first inkling was like, all right, well, there's these American teams. But then I was reading and and then... Wow, I, you asked me about my work balance, and I am taking you down this, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you about it. So um, I did some research, and I was like, uh, these American teams. But you'd read all these stories about these American teams, and you get to the point where they got their asses kicked by the Koreans. So I came back, and I was like, I want to write about the Koreans. <laughs> so the, Megan's like, sure. So then I did a little more research, and I was like, all right, there's this 19-year-old kid who's like LeBron. And she's like, great. So I went to Korea for 10 days <laughs> and wrote about him. And it's like one of my favorite stories I've ever done. Why? I did you know, because, you know, I was saying earlier about like with a quarterback, famous quarterback, everyone knows who they are. So the burden is to like bring something new to the table. With this story, esports readers knew who he was, right? But I knew I was also writing for a mainstream audience that didn't care at all about who he was, the sport, the stakes, whatever. I knew he had there was this amazing story. It was like about how all this talent was leaving Korea and the. He was like a fascinating character to me, but I was like, I have to make people care about him and they should care about him because he's a great story. And I, I'm like fascinated by this. So like I had this incredible material and as a writer, like it's like a jeweler sitting in front of like a case of diamonds and like knowing you, but you know what I mean? Like it's not sometimes with stories about famous people where you get 15 minutes, you're like, God damn, I got to turn this into like 2000 words. This is the opposite of that. It's like, oh, how do I limit this to right, 6,000 right, right. words or whatever? I felt like, I mean, I went to Korea a couple years later, maybe it was a year later, to write about baseball. And that was similar. 
where I came back and I was like, oh man, how do I even fit this in? I just am bursting with so much material. Like I love this story so much. And again, that was an ESPN taking a pretty big risk, sending me to Korea for like, and again, like 10 days <laughs> to write about like... bat flips. It was ridiculous. Both of those stories, I remember both of them and they stuck out to me and it was fun. Like just as a reader, it was fun to watch like you pick your spots as a writer and I think another reason why I wanted to talk to you is like you're doing all these things now and now it feels like once or twice a year like we get mm. a, we get a Mina piece <laughs> we're graced with a Mina piece <laughs> so I have two questions about that one yeah. of them is at this point how are you deciding when to do that sure but actually the, I think maybe the more pressing one is like do you miss it well yeah so this year, I think I've done like four stories or something. I mean, no, the last story. I'm sorry, I'm selling you short. No, that's okay. Um, the last story I did was on DeAndre Hopkins. And um, that was one where it was kind of less about him. You know, it wasn't like, let's hang out with this athlete and do fun stuff and see. It was more just like a very specific story. But it was about his mom. It was about him and his mom. But it was really, yeah, it's like really like a story about his mom and like ended, you know, he's wonderful. But it, I kind of like was like, oh, this is the thing. But yeah, so I. Do you miss it was the question. Yeah. Here's what I'll say. Writing about really famous athletes is really challenging these days. It's really hard to spend time with them. It gets harder and harder all the time. When you do get the opportunity, it wasn't, I mean, like three years ago, Aaron Rodgers came to my house and hung out for a few hours, which is fucking nuts. It's awesome. It's like the diamonds thing where you're like, how the hell do I fit this? But those opportunities are rare. So for me, as someone who's, that's kind of like as a writer, a lot of times that's my task is to like write up the famous guy. I think I feel pretty lucky that I can wait for those opportunities because they are few and far between. Mm -hmm. What about like uh, bat flips though in esports and like yeah. the kind of thing where you can go like take 10 days and go to Korea? I, you know, it's funny. I am still looking for things like that and picking my spots, but I also like in this new project we're doing where, um, doing it this daily sports podcast, right? ESPN Daily. I have really enjoyed figuring out how to do them in audio and also working with other people on them in a sort of a different role rather than being the person who goes for 10 days and, um, you know, gets really tired and lost a lot. <laughs> I, I do. I really enjoy that. But I, but I kind of enjoy being the person who gets to kind of wait at the end too and talk about it yeah so no you don't miss it um you know it's not over for me max <laughs> <laughs> i'm busy but i still do i still well, you do seem stuff. insanely busy from that. I so that's, busy. What, that's what i'm asking like uh let me put this in a different way that doesn't sound quite as like injurious as it maybe that's does. okay like uh the last time you came on the show you were like a magazine writer and a good one thank and you and seemed like there was a path before you where you could write for big magazines that lots of people read for a long time. And now you are spending, I assume, many hours a day making a daily sports podcast yeah. and going on TV yeah. and picking your spots where you're writing. But it's like, you know, a sort of like minor part of the way you spend your time. Yeah. And there are lots of people who are listening to this podcast who aspire to do the first thing or are doing the first thing and like desperately trying to hold on to yeah. that job. And so as someone who 
moved away from it, I wonder whether, uh, you know, like you miss it or how you feel about that. Yeah. To me, it's important to still do it, which is why I don't get a lot of sleep, quite frankly, that I'm still doing all these things. I mean, I've been doing TV now for a couple of years, but I've continued to write. I would say it is a little bit harder. Like, I'm not going to go cover the Olympics anymore. I'm probably not going to spend 10 days in Korea these days uh, in the same way. So that's changed. And I do miss that. I'd like to get back to it at some point. I don't know when. But for me, it is like an itch that will always exist. I mean, shit, you know, I'll read a great profile and I'm still pissed that I didn't write it. And until that goes away, I'll probably keep doing it. Well, I think maybe that's part of what I'm asking is like, it's hard. Like magazine writing's hard. You can spend all of your time doing it and you'd still like, there's still like room to get better all the time. And I guess maybe part of what I'm asking is like, what does it feel like to sort of like not be putting all of your energy into the thing that you were once doing for your career? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Are, like, are you still getting well, better it's at not, it? It's not too dissimilar from you asked me about going from business to sports and you feel like you build up all of this expertise and knowledge and work and hours. You put your 10,000 hours into reading 10Ks and like learning how to do this one thing. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, now I'm going to do this other thing. What, like, what was I doing? Or is that, you know, I find that my, while my work has changed, the parts of my brain that I've, I guess, like strengthened and that I lean on are the same, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I, as a magazine writer, the things you have to do, list kind of the things I was describing earlier, you're writing, producing, directing, yeah. you're synthesizing, you're always looking for the angle, you're looking for what's next, you're thinking, even though you're not performing on camera, you're performing, you're saying, what can I say to make this person comfortable? What can I say to move this along? What can I say to facilitate the right sort of conversation? What's the actual story here? How do I tell this story? How do I make people give a shit about this story? Those are all the things I still use in audio, television, whatever. The output, obviously, is very different. But it's the process that goes into it is not so different. Hmm, that's interesting. I think in my head it was like so clearly like a trade-off. Yeah. But it's not is what you're saying. I think the back end is more similar than you would think. Hmm. I look a lot better because now they put makeup on me. And <laughs> honestly, that yeah, that, that's very different. The front end is, <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> it is different. But yeah, everything that goes into it is actually, it, there's a lot of similarities. The research element. No one ever talks about the research. Talk about the research. I mean, like, you know, with magazine stories, but certainly like this is business, but with athletes as well. If I'm writing about, like, I don't know, like Aaron Rodgers or whatever, I would read literally everything ever written about him. Everything. I would listen to everything and write and I would take copious notes and all that shit. And then I would use that to formulate my approach. And honestly, that has not changed at all, right? So doing television, pocket, whatever, developing takes. The research that goes into a take, it's really not that dissimilar. The gas bag hot take game is, is hard, is what you're telling me? It looks easy from afar. I, it's, well, maybe it's easy for like Stephen A. <laughs> I think maybe it's that's for certain people. But I, it's funny. I just did like a work diary thing for the New York Times. And it was like I had to leave out most of it because it was just reading. <laughs> I just spend most of my day reading articles, right? 
Like that's like 80% of my work day is just reading. And, and that's that was the same as it ever was. All right, well, walk me through like what's your work day now? Oh boy. So we ESPN Daily, we do the day before, right? So we produce an episode that comes out the next morning. So early in the morning, we decide what that is. Sometimes it's something we've had in the works. Sometimes we're pivoting in response to the news. So we're waking up doing interviews or finishing something. So I'm doing that. I'm also in the morning, right when I wake up, I'm reading, 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 processing what happened the night before. What time do you wake up every day? Seven, 6.30. So... Sometimes I'm on television. If I'm on a show like Around the Horn or Highly Questionable, that takes me out of pocket from like 9 to eleven fifteen or so. And, and how often do you do that? A couple times a week. And how does that get decided? How do we go on the shows? Well, that's like a whole thing. Yeah. Like, how, like yeah. how do you know whether it's like a TV day or not? We just give availabilities to producers the weeks before and gotcha. then they tell us, yeah, if okay. we're on stuff. Yeah. And then on Tuesdays, I record my NFL podcast, The Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. <laughs> Which also, like, I do an insane amount of prep for, usually on Mondays and Sundays, coming off of Sunday or whatever. The NFL show is just once a week. It's very different from ESPN Daily. You would not like it if you don't like football. <laughs> I'll just sum it up as that. <laughs> or dogs. Um, and then for the daily podcast, too, I, on average day, so we're doing interviews throughout the day. I always do, like, a two-ish minute thing at the end, like a monologue type thing. So I usually write that, mostly written, and um, do that during the day as well. Again, that requires some reading and processing and thinking. And then later in the day, I'll do like retracts, pickups, whatever we need to finish that episode. But that's just the podcast, right? Yeah. So that's what I'm doing for the podcast during the day. Okay. Otherwise, you know, I... I, I I'm just a professional talker. Like, I'm just on various shows, radio, other people's things, just talking often about football, which is, we haven't really talked about it, but that's kind of like my bread and butter here at ESPN, um, filling in for things every now and then as well. And also looking for, like, stories to write. Yeah. Uh, these days, it's less me looking and more me being told, hey, <laughs> <laughs> Baker Mayfield. <laughs> that, that's how that happens. Actually, that one, I, I was me. It's a mix for me. It's always been a mix, honestly. Um, and how does that work with, like, the magazine not existing anymore? Well, so the story of DeAndre Hopkins and his mom was our, like, first digital cover story, they're calling it. So um, that was the beginning of, like, a profile features type franchise that they're doing. So that group has sort of remained the same. So all of the same magazine writers, I'm sure you've interviewed some of mm -hmm. us, right? Yeah. We're all just working with the same editors and, you know, just putting things out digitally. Can I just go back to your work day for sure. a second? It sounds insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Does it feel that way? It's tough during the NFL season. I will say that because Sunday, because I just, I watch the games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all the games. And, you know, I'm taking notes and that kind of thing. So Sundays and Mondays are very crazy for me. You work Fridays? So Fridays are like the easiest day for the podcast because we're a Monday through Friday show. So we produce Sunday through Thursday. I usually do around the horn on Fridays, but that's done by like 1230 here. So it's a little more relaxed. It sounds like a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I work every day, but that was before when I was just writing. It was the same way. 
have you is that like um because that's like the way you're wired or yeah. to work at ESPN in 2019 does it just mean you work every day might be like to work in media in yeah. 2019 right i don't yeah. know i don't know are you interview a lot of people are other people's schedules like mine no I mean, I think a lot of people who do what I do, which is a combination of audio, TV, writing, podcasts, probably have more similar schedules. I genuinely don't quite understand how you do it. I mean, it's a busy work day, but it's pretty contained. Yeah. Like I, you know, usually our interviews are done during the day. In, in fact, in some ways, actually, my work life was a lot crazier when I was writing because you're at the behest of these guys' schedules, the stories I could tell you. <laughs> tell me some. <laughs> Gosh. I mentioned this to, on the, I was on the Bill Simmons show. I think I might have mentioned this to him. When I, I just ran Antonio Brown, and I was like on, literally on call in Pittsburgh, just waiting in a hotel room for him to make himself available to me. And then one of his people called me, and they're like, 30 minutes, Ruth Chris, go. So I had to like run to a Ruth Chris to have dinner with Antonio Brown, who then showed up with like two of his boys, all of whom I bought dinner. And, uh, it, literally, I'd been there like in a room for 48 hours. That happens all the time, though. With I mean, not all the time, but pretty frequently. I mean, the Rogers thing was funny because I didn't know I was interviewing him until the day before. And I didn't know until I was interviewing, interviewing him at my house until the night before. So it was like a panicked cleaning. Yeah. But then you got the place looking right. It was small. He was very gracious about it, even though he parked on, I told him to park in the wrong street. He got a ticket. He was very nice about it. Do you get nervous before those things? Oh, now? yeah. I was super fucking nervous. Does that change, though, like the more that you do them? It's funny because I'm not nervous about meeting a famous person. Like, I'm not like, oh, my God, it's Aaron Rodgers. Wow. I hope he likes me. Like, it's more like I have four hours to not fuck this up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I got one shot with this guy to get everything I can out of him. He's not coming back to get the ticket on a different street. No. Although really he was very available, like I could just call him after and like, but but some some like I mean the Ali Reisman story, I had maybe like thirty minutes with her max. Like there are a lot of athletes where you do not get a lot of time, and that's extremely nerve wracking as a writer because you're just like man. Yeah, how do you like how do you develop any kind of like rapport with someone in thirty that's a, minutes? Especially that's, that's Ali, Ali Reisman's like uh, this incredibly intense and emotional I know. story. Yeah. But actually, like what you're describing, again, it's very similar to being on television or like interviewing people like, you know, for radio or podcasts, like it is a similar skill set. It's like, okay, how do I immediately get to the place I need to get to? Whether it's me as a performer, interacting with someone, facilitating conversation, this needs to happen extremely fast. Is that something you can like keep getting better at all the time? I hope so. God, otherwise it's not been going well. Um, (laughs) I think, yes, just purely because of comfort. Mm-hmm. I mean, the less nervous you are, the easier it is. You know, me going into a situation knowing I have an hour and I'm probably going to get what I need already is makes it me more likely to succeed in an interview. Okay, so Megan Greenwell comes calling in 2014. It's like, quit doing this business stuff. Yeah. Come write about sports. And basically you talk to your dad and then you're like, yeah, that's good. That, yes. I, that's that's the thing I should do. Like, has it changed at all? Like, are you as, still as big a fan? Can you be as big a fan once you get as close to this stuff as you are now? Yes. Yes, I'm still <laughs> a, a psychotic fan. But also, it really changes the way you watch sports uh, for obvious reasons. But also, it changes, like, what you're rooting for. I mean, when I was just writing, I was always rooting for the story. 
I mean, certainly with NFL, you're like, please don't get hurt, please don't get hurt, please don't get hurt when you're writing about an athlete. Hopkins, by the way, I just ran Yadier Hopkins, and um, story is his mom is blind. She's never seen him play in the NFL, and um, she goes to all his games. They'll always sit in the same spot, and when he scores a touchdown, he finds her and hands her the football. And you better believe I was like, please score a touchdown every single game. And I went to a game with her and I was like, come on, DeAndre. Like, and um, actually, though, they were on a night game, I want to say a couple weeks ago, and it happened. And nobody knew that before. But then the story came out and people were just going nuts because everybody, the camera followed. And, like people knew from the story that it was like a thing. But while I was in the process of writing that, all I wanted was for him to succeed and crush it because yeah. I was writing about him. And the other thing I would say is with um, takes, too, um, I'm, I root for myself to be correct <laughs> <laughs> all the time. That's all I care about. I just want to be right. <laughs> so if, like, you predict what's going to happen in that night's game, you're just rooting for your prediction. Well, I, I generally, like, especially in the NFL, I give, like, analysis of what I think about players or whatever, and you'd like to not be, like, wildly proven wrong. Can I ask you a question you probably uh, can't answer? Sure. Uh, I've been watching football my entire life. I'm a football fan. Sure. Increasingly, I feel uh, bad about it. People ask me this all the time. Okay, great. Yeah. Do you feel that way? Does the sport feel problematic to you? Yeah. Certain things that happen make me feel bad all the time. The violence, the danger of the sport, everything we know now about concussions. Absolutely. I mean, when I'm watching a Thursday night football game and a player gets taken out and is laying on the field and can't move and they have to, like, bring out the board and everyone's wondering for a second, holy smokes, is this another Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. It makes me question everything all the time. You know, it's interesting because I think there is this sort of narrative not narrative, but the counter argument you hear a lot is, well, now players know what they're signing up for. They didn't pre-2009, 10, when some of the information is coming out. I don't really buy that as, I think, a justification. Well, they know, you know, if people know something is dangerous, then we're all complicit in it, but at least, like, everyone's agreed to this. I think there's some accuracy to that, and certainly the terms have changed, but I think you absolutely are making compromises when you watch this sport in particular as a person, when you talk about it, when you're part of the business of it. I recognize that in myself. Like, I'm, I'm one of those people who are just like any fan who's watching and cheering for it when that kind of thing, you know. I also feel like setting aside the fact that I absolutely love it and I know I'm making these compromises, I feel like it's better for someone who loves it and is aware of those compromises to be covering it and talking about it and being honest about it than someone who's denying it personally. That's not a justification. That's just how I feel. As part of the, I mean, you are in a way like part of the like NFL industrial complex, you know? Sure. Is it hard to be honest about it from within that system? Not for me. I mean, I feel like everything I just said to you was pretty honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying that you're not. No, I know. I, I, I just, know. It seems like. I uh, would feel dishonest if I was asked to deny any of the reality of God, there's a million scam. Which one? But I think, especially with the brain injuries in particular, that's the single yeah. biggest crisis in football. I think if I wasn't allowed to speak honestly about that or if I felt like it was being ignored in crucial moments, I would not want to cover it. And I've talked to. Other people at ESPN about this, 
I understand it's kind of like, again, sort of impossible question to answer, but like ESPN is a major partner of the NFL's mm. and, and other sports and other sports. And, but the NFL is your bread and butter and it is a complicated and sometimes problematic institution. And I w- always wonder whether there are any like internal challenges or things that you need to like work through or checks that come down when you're working for a yeah. significant partner of the league. I have always felt like I can speak honestly about football. And if that wasn't the case, that wouldn't sit right with me. It's funny. We talked about, you know, Advocare, by the way, a story where I, I, I think maybe if, before I had worked at the company, I wouldn't have known that I would have been able to do a story like that for reasons. Can and, you tell people about it just in case they haven't read it? Oh, yeah. So it wasn't that long ago, actually. Maybe three years ago? Yeah, 2016, maybe? Something like that. Um, Advocare is a multi-level marketing company like Herbalife, Amway. You know, you guys know how they work. Uh, and they were really involved in sports. There was a bowl game that you could watch on ESPN and some partnerships and various things. And a lot of athletes, most notably Drew Brees, who is really a face of the company as an endorser, were involved. And um, multi-level marketing, you know, you sell it, you bring on other people to sell it, and you guys can look it up. And anyway, so... Um, it's a scam. I wrote a very critical story about them. And, uh, and about Brees. About Breeze, yeah, and uh, yeah, that that was a that was an interesting one. I remember when that came out. I mean, that was like it felt like uh, it felt surprising. Yeah, and, and that th- was a great process. I mean, I, our group under Chris Buckle, uh, who kind of has the investigative team, they do fantastic work. I think they're really under recognized for some of the reporting that they do. Yeah, I mean, Van Atta and Wickersham, and I mean, like, there's incredible stuff, and I just I wonder. I mean, I guess the answer is no, but. Just whether there is any difficulty in, like, on Tuesday writing about Drew Brees being the face of a multi-level marketing scam and on Wednesday going on Highly Questionable and talking about, like... Drew Brees, a football player? Yeah, how he's going to do on Sunday. If I was asked, is Drew Brees a good business person, I would give a very different answer from, is Drew Brees a good football player? Yeah. But navigating that isn't hard. I think more so, like, to bring it back to your question about the sport, like, how can we just talk about the sport like this crazy, violent thing isn't happening? I I do think that's, like, a compromise that we've all, we, being people who cover the NFL, who are fans of it, have learned to live with. And there are problems with that. Absolutely. I I think about it all the time. It's a difficult sport to cover. I get asked that a lot. I got asked a lot, you know, right when I came onto ESPN, right when the Ray Rice thing happened, too. Yeah. And that was the beginning of, like, the NFL kind of having a reckoning about domestic violence. And that was funny because not, that wasn't funny. But what was funny was uh, suddenly my phone was lighting up, like, hey, can you come on this show? You know, right? As a, which was honestly, it was interesting because I was like, I'm a football analyst. Like, I'd like to also talk about the sports. But at first, a lot of my appearances on television and radio were just, like, the photo woman kind of thing. And so at the moment, I think, though, a lot of people are saying, how can you watch this league and write about this league that's alienating women and this and that? And I don't know. I kind of I feel similarly about it, which is I think the best person to criticize football is someone who loves football. 
maybe not best, but you're certainly more likely to be listened to. After getting this close to it, do you like uh, love it more or less or in some different way? I love it more because I understand it better. I mean, over the last few years, you know, we've been talking about writing and takes and all that, but I've really put a lot of work into being an analyst. I have access to tools I certainly did not have access to before, statistics and such. And I find the game even more fun to watch when you understand sort of all the crazy complicated aspects of it. What was it like doing that work for the Rams this summer? It was really fun and really scary. Why was it scary? Because I hadn't done it and I was bad at it. You <laughs> it were really bad hard. at it. It was really hard. Um, I should explain what I did, right? I, I, <laughs> I did a color commentary for the preseason game on TV. And yeah, I was just kind of being thrown into something and trying something new. And I didn't want to say yes at first to the opportunity because I thought I would be bad at it. And I'm one of those people who doesn't like to say yes to things I don't feel 1,010% prepared for. But my agent said, no, you should do this. <laughs> and um, it was an incredible experience. Is that something you want to do more of now? Yeah, it, which is hard because every time you're like, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah. And all of a sudden, it's like a lot of things. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about. I don't about. know. I don't, ha- I don't really like have a lane that I feel extremely committed to. But um Yes, it was. Honestly, it's the closest thing I've done out of all the stuff, radio, writing, TV, whatever, to feeling like you're an athlete because you get like (laughs) juiced up and then it's like, oh, the game's starting and it's live and you can't mess up and you do mess up if you're me a lot and (laughs) you're trying to come on, you know, it's just like an adrenaline rush. Do you feel like you're famous? I am famous amongst maybe like 22-year-old males who watch ESPN between 4.30 and 6.30 p.m. That's your demo. <laughs> um, actually, you know, I had a live podcast show for the football show in Seattle, and there were so many women there. It was awesome. A group of <laughs> girls, like, came as a group, like, Three-year-olds with twinkle in their eyes. Yeah, ass. I know. And they're like, you're so inspiring. <laughs> like, yeah, thank you. No, I, I um, you know what's really sad? I don't know why I'm telling you this. If I'm wearing my television makeup and hair, I get recognized so much more. Really? <laughs> I know, I, I, which now I sounds like I look like extremely different, but um, yeah. So I think that means I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what that means. I, it doesn't mean anything good. I don't know why I said it out loud. Just but, means uh, this like split brain life of yours that I keep asking about over and over again is real. Right. There's like makeup. <laughs> no, makeup. It's really weird. Um, I think... I hope that the work I do across all these platforms is resonating with different audiences, if that makes sense. Although some of them, I think, like, you'd be shocked by how many people I meet who are like, oh, I watch you, but I also love this written thing. And I'm like, oh, okay, people do consume different media and tie it all together at times. I wonder if, like, um, how many people are paying close enough attention to, like, connect those dots all the time. Like, yeah. uh, my mom. <laughs> mom. Probably my mom. Me. She leaves a lot of reviews <laughs> on various things. All right. So when I showed up, I was hoping that there was like some very clear linear path that you feel like you've been following that you mm. could explain to me. Uh, but it appears that the answer is that that is not the case. Yeah, I've really fallen up. <laughs> fallen into things, rather, not up. I've fallen sideways. I've fallen at weird angles. 
Like um, genuinely, there hasn't been a plan. It's like you just keep saying yes to things. You know, I, I say yes to things that I find interesting. The problem is I just find a lot of things interesting, I guess. I mean, I still love the same style of work. It's just manifests itself in different ways. And I think it goes back to kind of what we were saying about everything that goes into a magazine story is what I love doing. I love being around someone else and trying to bring out the best in them, trying to be a version of myself that f- makes them feel free and comfortable and entertained, quite frankly. Um, I like doing a lot of reading and research and synthesizing all of that into a coherent argument or theme. And I find that like all across all of my work, I still do all of those things. So what happens next? How do I'm you... taking a vacation. Shortly. Yeah? Yeah, for a few days. During yeah. the football season? Um, it's during the week. It's going to be like a Tuesday through Saturday situation. Well, after you get five days off... What's going to happen now? Like, can you keep balancing all these things? Well, I really hope I would like to grow this daily show because one of the things I've really loved about being a sports writer is, and doing the kinds of stories I did, is that even though I'm like a crazy football person and love nerding out and just like really, really obscure shit. There's nothing I love more than when someone comes to me and say, hey, I don't care about football, but I love this piece. And I feel like with this show, we have the ability to do that as well. And I think that's always been something at ESPN and bits and pieces and pockets, right? Coming up with stories and angles and analysis that can, yes, sports fans will like it, but that you can make people care about sports stories or you can make sports fans care about issues that go beyond sports. So I would really like to be able to do that with this. Um, It's new. We're still growing it and kind of figuring out. But I think it has that capability, and I think that's really exciting. We had um, Michael Barbaro on the show a while ago, and he talked a lot about how they had to make this conscious decision that, like, to do that show, it needed to be his whole job. Mm. And he was, like, you know, on the politics desk at the time. Right. And the deal was like, you don't do that anymore. You do this. And I think I'm actually like a little surprised to hear how much you're sort of fitting in around that. Because doing a daily podcast that's as produced as the one that you're making, is like, it's a huge lift. Mm. Um, and maybe the, I just am asking the same thing 3,000 different ways. <laughs> but like to pull that off, like to do that, to do it well, do you think you can keep doing all the other stuff too well we could always grow our staff that would help um but yeah i, I don't know i i am i'd like to try because i really like the way my other work informs this i i find that whether it's doing a podcast or a radio show or tv show it helps a lot to be if you're just kind of myopic and you're focused on the show and you're not engaging whether it's as a writer or whether you're talking to people across the company constantly, it can be hard to come up with ideas and new approaches. And I think that's, for me, been one of the benefits of doing a lot of things. It's exposed me to a lot of ideas and perspectives that I probably wouldn't get if I was just on my own. I feel like this whole interview is me asking you over and over again, like, this seems very hard. Is, are you okay? <laughs> but, I mean, it, I... I don't know. I just, I do my best. Well, thanks for doing this. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor, who had a fantastic 2019, is Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to her. Thanks to our intern, Marina Clementi, and to our sponsors, which make this all possible, MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks to everyone, but particularly to Mina Kimes for slotting me in amidst her, like, thousand other obligations at ESPN. Uh, someone literally came in and was like, you have to stop asking her questions. She needs to ask someone questions now. Uh, Mina, thank you. We're going to take two weeks off. We're going to put some uh, favorites through the feed, and we'll be back in January. See you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.